All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Who is to blame for what is currently going on in Afghanistan? And while blaming people is incredibly popular within political discourse, maybe we should get to the even more important question is what do we do about it right now? And finally, what are the moral and strategic implications if we fail to correct what it is currently taking place in Afghanistan? We discuss all of that on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, I was recently talking with um, somebody from Afghanistan who's currently over here in the United States. Um, and it was, it was heartbreaking listening to them because as they're explaining this, and the person I was talking to was probably in their mid-30s. And what he was saying was, he goes, you know, for the last 20 years in Afghanistan, he goes, I've, I've lived in a, in a very different world than the one that I was originally born into. And the opportunities that were present and, and the things that were changing within Afghanistan gave him a great deal of hope for what the future would look like for himself, his family, for his children. And he feels like it, it all just disappeared in a week. And, and as he's conveying this to me, understand this is someone that still has family over in Afghanistan and is desperately concerned about what is going to happen to them. And like a lot of us, feel completely helpless with respect to what can we actually do to affect the situation on the ground. And in order to get into that, in order to get into answering that question, we're first going to talk about like, how did we get here? Like, how, how did we get to the situation that we are right now in Afghanistan? And, and what is the on-the-ground truth with respect to what's going on? Well, again, taking it back a, a little bit further, obviously, you know, getting out of Afghanistan has been the goal of both Democrat and Republican administrations now. O Obama wanted to do it. He increased the troops initially, but his goal was to try to get to a certain level and then remove. When Donald Trump came into office, he was very adamant about removing uh, troops from Afghanistan. And what a lot of people don't know is that when Trump was in office, we actually reduced the number, total number of troops in Afghanistan to over 10,000 to right around 2,500 to 3,000. And for the last couple of years, there, there hasn't been a lot of, a, there, there hasn't been, the American forces have not been primarily responsible for executing the war. We've largely been playing a support, advisory, and logistical role. And while the Taliban was, was certainly strong in certain areas of Afghanistan, the United States with our Afghan allies were able to hold on to centers like Kabul, Bagram, and other areas of the country. And that small American footprint appeared to have been enough to kind of maintain a certain degree of stability and, and status quo. Now, 
Trump had entered into negotiations with respect to American forces leaving Afghanistan, but they were conditional. So certain benchmarks had to be met in order for U.S. troops to be removed. So a lot of people that are talking about, well, all these U.S. troops were going to be out of Afghanistan by May 1st. So whatever's going on right now, it would have been so much, it would have been so much worse if we had done it a few months earlier. Well, that, again, that's not exactly true because it was, it was part of a conditional uh, arrangement for the withdrawal of U.S. troops. So again, if certain benchmarks weren't met, U.S. troops still remained in place. And one of the important things to remember here is, again, as we look at the Afghan military, because a lot of people are wondering, why did the Afghan military, why does it seem like they instantly disintegrated? A lot of the Afghan military, regardless of how many we trained or whatnot, were still heavily dependent upon the United States for logistical support, especially with respect to some of the more high-tech equipment that they had. And so the idea of just automatically removing that overnight, it doesn't mean that you still have this, you know, 200,000-person army. It means that basically everything that that army is depending upon for logistics, for supply, for equipment, for mechanics, etc., a lot of that went away. Now, we can certainly ask the question on why didn't we do a better job of preparing the Afghan military to be able to operate with its own equipment and be able to be self-sustaining. That is a perfectly legitimate question. But we can't just pretend that that logistical consideration was not there. And so all of a sudden when this was, okay, we're now leaving regardless of any conditions being met, that the Afghan military and law enforcement that were dependent upon that supply chain were all of a sudden in a position where they didn't feel like they could adequately you know, maintain combat operations. Uh, again, we can debate all day long about you know, whether or not they should have been able to, but the bottom line is they weren't. And so it's important to understand that the number of troops you have in the field does not automatically equal combat power if they're reliant upon a logistical system that they're not able to maintain. So this, this, this very quick removal of U.S. forces, U.S. contractors, the people that maintain this equipment, had a devastating effect. And I think it's important to understand what this actually means for the United States, because there's maybe some people out there that look at this and say, okay, well, regardless of what we should have done, could have done, we're, we're living in the now, and it's not our job to go back and fix this. And let me be clear, I'm not advocating a reinvasion of Afghanistan, but I, I want everyone to understand what is actually going on on the ground right now. So let's read off just a little bit uh, of some of the reports about the military equipment left behind in Afghanistan. You, you can go research this. We'll put this in the show notes page. Uh, it was an article written by Forbes, and there's some really interesting information here. So for instance, the U.S. spent $3 billion on Afghan military aid in 2021 alone. We're not even through 2021. So for, forget the previous 20 years, $3 billion just in 2021 that we spent in military aid to the Afghan military. Now, according to Forbes, the Biden administration is now hiding key audits on Afghan military equipment that was captured by the Taliban. What that means is, is that it, previously you could go back and you look at the audits where they went through and they were actually telling the American taxpayer what sort of equipment and what sort of funding, what sort of support was being provided to the Afghan military. So the vehicles, weaponry, helicopters, aircraft, etc. You can go and you could look that. And Forbes has a very interesting article where they actually have tweets where they show you what the audits told you, you know, months ago versus what they're telling you now. Because what it looks like is the, the Biden administration is actually going in and scrubbing those audits and making sure that some of that information is not available so that we can better understand how exactly we were conducting ourselves in Afghanistan. But let's give you some, some details. The U.S. provided 75,898 vehicles 
and 208 aircraft to the Afghan army and security forces, according to the Government Accountability Office report. This month, the Taliban seized at least seven Black Hawk helicopters, each helicopter being worth somewhere around $20 million. Okay, there's, there's variants within the Black Hawk, right? There's some for export, there's some that the U.S. military uses, there's certain capabilities, but on average, you're looking at about $20 million per Black Hawk aircraft that was seized by the Taliban. So, in, in, in addition to that, we've actually had to send in more military forces now because the, the, the botched up withdrawal created an environment where the Taliban was able to overrun areas that Biden, the Biden administration didn't think was possible. They were able to do it in such a quick amount of time that when it came to our evacuation operations, both of American citizens and Afghans that have U.S. visas, that have worked with the United States, many of which have already been pre-vetted to come into the United States, they can no longer get to the airfield in Kabul in order to fly out. And so the end result was we actually had to put more troops back in Afghanistan in order to secure a perimeter. And even at this point, that perimeter is largely just around the Kabul airport. So it's not as if we're expanding out into greater Kabul to be able to collect the people that we need to. No, we're having to send out separate operations to recover people. And in many cases, you know, the, whether or not we have adequate troops on the ground to, to accomplish that, especially by the August 31st date that they're suggesting, is tenuous at best. It's one of the reasons why the Biden administration is now basically um, taking five commercial airliners and they're responsible for flying in. Now, one of the questions that have been asked is why can't we get additional people in there in order to help? And we're going to go over that a little bit later, but there are actually administrative reasons why they're not permitting people to do that. And it's incredibly frustrating. But I, I think what we need to understand about where we're at right now is that after 20 years of combat, over $2 trillion spent, thousands of lives lost, the result of thousands, is thousands of Americans and Afghan allies trapped behind enemy lines and billions of dollars equipment in the hands of the Taliban. Right? It cannot end like this. Right? Regardless of where you have stood on the war, whether you supported it initially and then changed your mind later, whether you, you decided we need people out, whether you're someone like me that did want to see U.S. forces out of Afghanistan but wanted to see a conditional withdrawal that actually left us with an ally in place, All right, regardless of where you're at right now, we cannot let what is currently happening be our final chapter in Afghanistan. It would be an insult to everyone that has served over there, and it would be an insult and an absolute betrayal to people that trusted us that we made promises to. Not to mention the fact that thousands of Americans that are still trapped in place by a Taliban regime that is essentially throwing their weight around right now. Keep in mind, this is the same Taliban regime that the first time we wanted to kick them out of, the, out of Kabul, it took very few troops and very little time because they cannot match U.S. combat power, period, the end. Yeah, they can sustain themselves if they want to go run and hide in Pakistan for a while and then come back during the fighting season. But there's no way they possess the capability to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with U.S. military power. They just don't, and they know that. So what, what needs to be done now? All right, we, we know the mess that we're in. What needs to be done now? And this really comes down to a couple of questions. Because I'll tell you what is completely unacceptable. What's completely unacceptable is a report that came out that the State Department was requiring $2,000 from American citizens for rescue from Kabul. Let me go into that a little bit more. The State Department's Overseas Security Advisory Council said on August 14th, reparation flights are not free. 
and passengers will be required to sign a promissory loan agreement and may not be eligible to renew their U.S. passports till the loan is repaid. Costs may be $2,000 or more per person. Biden administration left behind billions of taxpayer-funded arms. His State Department went, wanted to charge American taxpayers themselves for the right to be evacuated from a humanitarian disaster that Biden caused. So keep in mind, the reason why this policy is in place, because some people have asked, why would this policy ever be in place? There are times when Americans go to countries, sometimes completely against the advice of the U.S. Embassy. So for instance, they visit a country to do some sort of work. Maybe they're hiking. You know, It doesn't matter why they went there. But the U.S. government essentially says that, look, if you go to a country um, and there's, there's some sort of, we, we provide you an advisory with respect to it, and then you need to get out, we will get you out, but the taxpayers will not be on the hook for it. You'll have to pay your way. And in some cases, that makes absolute sense. Does it really make sense in this case? In this case, where you had thousands of Americans that were over there that were a part of you know, everything from ISAF, uh, the International Security Assistance Forces, to assisting the U.S. government, to assisting the Afghan government. And then you have this precipitous withdrawal that has completely been botched, where people are stranded, and now you're going to say, yeah, we'll get you out, but it's going to cost you two grand. I'm, I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. So it was it, as soon as it became public, the State Department actually got rid of that. So what I want you to understand, what I want you to learn from this is not that this is currently going on in Afghanistan. What I want you to learn from it is that when some of these things become, when they're made public, when people share their stories, when you apply pressure, you can get this administration to change their course of action. And as we look at what's going on with Afghanistan right now, the question is, how do we fix this to make sure that we can get all of our Americans out and that we can get the people that, that we owe a debt of honor to based off of promises that we made, how can we get them out? And there's a couple of different ways that you can do this. Now, <clears throat> the first way is you can send in more U.S. troops. I know a lot of people don't like that option, but the question right now is, is that if you have the airfield secured and all the people you're trying to get are, are largely in, in Kabul or in surrounding areas around Kabul and you can't get to them, or it's incredibly dangerous to launch operations to go get them. You got one of two operations. You got one of two options. You either send in more troops to launch more operations in order to get them, or you expand your perimeter. Now, if you expand your perimeter, you're running into potential chances for additional conflict with the Taliban. You can run into potential firefights. But that would be one of the things that this administration could do: is they could remind the Taliban of how easy it was for us to kick their ass the first time we were around, and so they need to pull back while we get our people out. And if they're not willing to do that, there will be consequences associated with it. That's one thing. Or again, you maintain your current perimeter and you continue to send patrols out in order to get to the people that you have to get to. There's two different ways that you can do that, but both of them are going to require one of two things. You're going to need an increased military presence or you're going to have to extend the deadline. I don't, maybe they can pull it off, but I don't see any way right now that they can get to all of the Americans and the Afghans that have visas. I don't see how they get to all of them by August 31st with the current capacity. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am, but I don't think I am. And I know enough about military operations from my own time in the military to say that with some assurance. So some of the pressure that needs to potentially be laid on the administration right now is that they need to allow, they need to tell the Taliban right now, the administration has hinted at it and the Taliban has pushed back against it. This is the time where you get your additional forces into country so that you can either push back that perimeter or do what you need to do. But whatever you do, 
If you're going to go past that deadline, at that point, you need to be prepared to launch effective operations on the ground if the Taliban decide that they want to resist that effort. Right? You have to have that capability in place. I'm not talking about reinvading the country. I'm talking about having ample forces necessary in order to complete a successful withdrawal instead of the absolute debacle we're watching right now. Now, what's another option that you could do with this? Well, another option is, and this one is, is a little bit more difficult to, it's a little bit more difficult to uh, command or control, but you can allow for volunteer and contractor organizations to come in and do the same thing. Now, I, I will tell you right now, even if you have a visa to go to Afghanistan, I know because I've checked, even if you have a visa to go to Afghanistan right now and you want to help out from a humanitarian perspective, you want to provide you know, medical assistance to the people on the airfield, um, you have the training and the capability to conduct other operations, the United States government will not let you into country. Typically, the way that you would do this is you, you could, like a couple weeks ago, you could have booked a flight at Washington Dulles, flown to Dubai or New Delhi, and then gotten a, a plane right into Kabul airport. You could have gotten in there on a commercial flight. You cannot do that right now unless you have specific military authorization to do so. And, and their justification for this is they're doing it just purely for evac operations. Okay, I understand that. The frustrating part is, is that additional resources could be made available by people that have the know-how, have the training, have the experience, many of them having served in Afghanistan. All right, there's additional resources of people that want to assist with this that I think could be facilitated. But right now, the administration has, they're saying no to that. You can only fly in by mill air, and it's only for evac operations. Okay, if, if that's going to be your strategy, if you're going to basically tell everyone else that wants to assist that you've got this, then you damn, bell, damn well better have it. If you're going to tell everyone else they're not allowed to assist, and, and I, I can understand some of the command and control reasons for doing that, but if that's what you're going to do, then you better have this. Because, again, I go back to this whole idea that you would charge $2,000 to Americans that were trapped in a situation of this administration's creation. Let's, let's make, be very clear about this. Okay, this is not your typical environment where the State Department would charge someone $2,000 to go out. The Biden administration screwed something up. Americans were stranded. And then they were going to say, it's going to cost you $2,000 to get you out. Let me, let me go ahead and frame this up, because I want you to understand how absurd this particular policy, which, which might be relevant in certain areas, but not relevant in this area. I want, you to, I want you to understand how absurd this is, okay? Biden's State Department was charging Americans $2,000 to be rescued by their own government for the cost of a single Hunter Biden painting, which can go as high as $500,000. That means you could save 250 Americans from Kabul. That's how absurd this was. So, all right, we, we, know, we know what happened. We know the problems with where we're at right now. We have some potential solutions on, on how we can at least leave the country with some shred of honor intact, but it's going to require a course change from what the administration is currently doing. The question now is, what's at stake if we fail? Like, if we, if we don't do any of this, or let's say, let's say Biden is not able to get several hundred or, or, or thousand Americans out, 
Let's say that many Afghans that worked with us, that trusted us, that we made promises to, are now slaughtered by the Taliban as a result of the way this administration has handled this withdrawal. What, what are the moral and strategic implications of that? Well, I, I think this is, this is important. <clears throat> you need to ask yourself if you're an American ally, uh, especially in the, in the sort of situation that we see in Afghanistan. Are, are you going to work with us in the future? And, and I don't just mean in Afghanistan. I mean any other country that we may find ourselves in an area where we need cooperation with the local population or we may need someone to be able to stand up to a terrorist organization and provide intel or we need someone to be able to stand up to a government which is a direct threat to the United States. Are you going to do it? Because I will tell you right now, my service in Iraq, that was a question I got from Iraqis a lot of the time. It was like, how long are you really going to be here? How much, so, at, at when you leave, is there still going to be any support for us or are we just done for? And, and it took several years and a great deal of work and effort to build up both a certain degree of trust and a certain degree of internal capacity that even when we had that and ISIS rose up, U.S. military support was still required in order to assist. But there, we have achieved some reasonable degree of stability in Iraq. But even the Kurds over there still have a huge problem with the United States because they feel like they will, they, we will come alongside them when it's convenient for us, which I understand from a national security uh, position, you might say, well, the only time we do this is when it's convenient for us. What you need to understand, though, is that what's, what's convenient for overall U.S. military strategy is not just the immediate goal, but it's also the ties you foster with the people that you may be working with in the future. It is also the signals that you send to every other population group that you may have to work with in the future that when America gives its word, we stand by it. Do you think we've achieved that in Afghanistan right now? And I'm not just talking about the, the moral implications of breaking your word. I'm talking about the strategic implications and not just for Afghanistan, but anywhere else we will have to conduct operations. Now, you may be saying to yourself that despite all that, the United States should not be as engaged in, in conflicts all over the world as it currently is. I can completely understand that argument. In fact, I'm very sympathetic to it. Anybody that has listened to me speak about foreign policy knows that I'm very, very adamant about the fact that before the United States goes into war, that Congress should actually vote on it. We should have a declaration. We should have clear objectives and that we are not the world's police force. By the same token... When you are engaged in a conflict and you have made commitments to people, it is absolutely critical to your future national security policy that you stand by the commitments you make so that your word needs something when you need it in the future. Because even the people that think that we should no be, have nowhere near the military footprint of the world that we do still generally agree that there may be times where we have to go to war. But if the people you're going to rely on to go to war with don't trust you because of your previous actions, then you have created a national security problem for yourself that goes way beyond the conflict that you currently find yourselves engaged in. But what are the other strategic implications here? Well, China is very interested in our departure. Now, again, I'm not claiming that China's interest in Afghanistan is, is, is in and of itself justification for a permanent U.S. military presence. I'm not making that claim. But it is important that when we analyze these things, we at least be aware of how other people within the region view this, whether it be Pakistan, whether it be Iran, whether it be China. China has long-term infrastructure, st strategic infrastructure goals that include Afghanistan. 
with respect to both means of trade and transportation going from China west over into the Caucasus, whether it's about getting the $3 trillion worth of mineral resources out of Afghanistan to include about a trillion of that being rare earth metals, which China dominates the market on right now. Because if China gets in there, there's only a few ways to get goods out of Afghanistan. You can either take it west, you can take it south through Pakistan in order to get to the ports in Pakistan, or you can take it east and you can take it to Chinese ports. What do you think is going to happen now with China coming in and already negotiating with the Taliban and making deals with them? How do you think that's going to play out? How do you think Russia is going to see this with respect to China's increased influence in this particular region? So there are strategic implications over here that, yes, do affect U.S. national security. So, in the end, let's, let's go ahead and wrap this up. What went wrong? Well, what went wrong was is that instead of doing a calm, orderly withdrawal that ensured that you had U.S. civilians and whatever Afghans had the appropriate paperwork to leave, instead of doing it in such a way to where you made sure that you had as secure perimeters around strategic locations, whether it be Bagram or Kabul, or even potentially Kandahar, removing people out before you actually reduce the size of your military presence to a point where you cannot maintain security, that would have been, that would have been step one in this process. It didn't happen. The administration chose a different path. Right? It was not foisted upon them. They didn't have to do it. They were not bound by what some other president may have had an agreement with. This administration had the power. They chose to do it this way against a great deal of advice from the intelligence and defense communities. They chose it. They own it. And while they deserve to be blamed, and while they created this problem, it is now all of our problem. On some level, it is all of our problem. And so the solution, again, you can either bring in enough U.S. troops to maintain the current perimeter that you hold and evacuate everything, everyone that you need to evacuate, or you can bring in additional troops and you can expand the perimeter to make it easier to evacuate them in an expedited time frame. The third option, which I don't even know, I don't even think is on the table anymore. The third option would have been you would have kept enough military forces in place to be able to provide a basic level of support so Afghanistan would have had a chance to basically stand on its own. For those of you that think they had 20 years to stand on its own and, and you're not giving, fine. But what we saw in Iraq was is that with limited military support, they could fight back a force. It would have been nice to have seen if the same thing could have happened in Afghanistan. This would have been one of their first big challenges where they were completely in the lead with minimal U.S. force uh, support and logistical support. It would have been nice to let them know that we weren't going to leave them in the middle of a firefight and see what would have happened and see if we could have provided some degree of more long-term stability. I think we're past that point right now. So at this point, you've essentially got two options, more military, more aircraft to, in order to do more patrols, expand the perimeter to where you can actually collect those people. With You can bring the perimeter to them. The, the third option, which the administration is, is essentially shut down at this point, is you allow for more volunteer and contractor services to come in and to assist with this operation. They have shut that down. You can show up to the airport right now with your ticket and your visa, and they will not let you in. And then finally, what's at stake if we fail? Well, we need to understand something. 
regardless of what our strategic views might have been with Afghanistan, whether it had been having an air base there, whether it had been having access to minerals, whether it had been shutting down Al-Qaeda, whether it had been shutting down the Taliban, whether it had been applying pressure against terrorist organizations and terrorist groups that operate all over the world but are largely based in that part of the world. A lot of those strategic objectives are now gone. Now, I want to be clear on one point. This is in no way a reflection of the men and women that fought in Afghanistan. They did what was asked of them. They were abandoned as well. But we do have to face the reality that while we severely degraded Al-Qaeda, while we prevented Taliban from being a launching point for terrorist operations against the West or against the United States on U.S. soil, we still have to recognize that a lot of the strategic objectives that we had have now been erased by the way this administration is withdrawn. And there's probably, a not, there's probably not a lot that this administration would be willing to do to correct some of that. But the other strategic implication, which is also a moral implication, is the idea that in the military, we don't leave people behind. And we still have the capability to make good on that promise. The question is, will this administration let us down? It is completely within their power to pull something from this that is honorable. But the decision is ultimately going to be theirs. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Again, check the show notes page if you want to look at some of the references that we use. If you want to see that Forbes article where the Biden administration got caught basically covering up an audit trail, you can go check it there at Forbes.com. Check in our show notes page. Once again, thank you for joining us on Making the Argument, and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.